This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to um, this lecture. This is the third lecture in the Harvest Distinguished Women Lecture Series. Um, for those who don't know you, my name is Fiona Doyle. In addition to being a professor in material science and engineering, um, I am the dean of the graduate division at Berkeley. Um, the graduate division has a proud tradition of managing the Berkeley graduate lectures. Um, we cover eight lectureships in all. Each has a distinctive endowment history and a distinctive theme for the lectures that are delivered um, under their auspices. Um, these different programs have brought um, a variety of incredibly distinguished visitors to Berkeley um, since 1904. Um, so this goes back well over 100 years. Um, really building on the principle that a great university is um, the repository in the center of knowledge that should be made available to the general public. Um, what's I find very interesting about the Harvest Distinguished um, Women Lecture Series, which is the newest addition to our um, collection, is that rather than choosing a particular theme for the lecture, the common theme for the three lectures has been distinguished women who, in fact, have been very, very different in um, their contributions to the world and their overall impact. The Harvest Lecture name um, comes from the first names of our lecture benefactors, um, UC Berkeley alumni, um, Harvey Lee and Esther Ma, um, both of whom earned their undergraduate degrees in economics at Berkeley before pursuing MBA degrees at Harvard and Columbia, respectively. Um, both Harvey and Esther have gone on to accomplished international business careers. Esther is the founder of the public relations um, firm Prestige um, and is the author of four books. Um, she was featured in the 2011 books, book Ladies Who Launch. Harvey is the vice chairman of Golden Real Estate Financial Holdings Limited. Although the couple are based in Hong Kong, I'm delighted that they are here with us today, um, along with their beautiful daughters. And um, on your behalf, I wish the family um, a happy new year. So we're very um, lucky that they've joined us during Chinese New Year. Um, so with that, um, it's my pleasure to invite Esther up to the lectern to provide a few words um, on her perspective on um, distinguished women. Esther. Thank you, Dean Doyle. Wow, it's great to be back at Cal. Go Bears! <laughs> So good afternoon and happy Chinese New Year of the Monkey. Um, Dean Doyle, Ms. Frances Dinkelsbeel, Ms. Deirdre English, and alumni, faculty, students, and distinguished guests. It is my and Harvey's honor to be here again for the third time to present 
the third Harvest Distinguished Woman Leader Lecture. Well, I always like to start with this poem that was actually unveiled during our wedding back in 1994. So here it goes. On a bright sunny day under the Sather Gate, two Berkeley freshmen met by fate. Dot, 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 dot. Nine years of sharing, nine years of caring. Uh, love has come of age, and true love and mutual trust would allow the 1985 vintage to yield a fruitful harvest. So indeed, Harvest got married nine years after they met under the Seth Gate. But it took them a little while to harvest their two little ones, Keisha and Tika. Um, took us 11 years. Um, and Keisha was born in 2005, while Tika was born in 2007, because I actually uh, had a couple of uh, multiple miscarriages within four years before that. But anyway, you know, ever since I became a parent, uh, Harvey and I both realized the importance of education, philanthropy, giving back to the community, and really nurturing a young generation of future leaders. And so that's why, you know, when uh, Dean Andrew Zeri approached us five years ago to offer us this opportunity to endow a lecture series we immediately accepted the invitation without hesitation because uh, this distinguished lecture series resonates with our philanthropic philosophies, being in education, leadership, uh, philanthropy, and also in the arts and the athletics. So if you look in Instagram under my name, Esther Ma Lee, you will notice that I label myself hyper entrepreneur. Well, I always call myself a full-time mom and a full-time entrepreneur. Um, having been running my own business for 20 years, and also now being a mom for 10 years, uh, I think, you know, I kind of, you know, take pride in being able to achieve that work-life balance, uh, which is, uh, gives me a sense of, a uh, great sense of gratifi gratification. So my typical day would be sending Keisha and Tika to school at 7.15, have a quick breakfast, and then work out for one and a half hours to two hours, uh, go into the office, have a business lunch, and then run some errands, and then pick up the girls at 3.30, and then I always request my clients to do events after 4.45, because that's when the kids are in their after-school activities. And then after the event, we'll either go home for dinner, look after their homework, or study with them, or once in a while, go out with Harvey on wine dinners, or so on and so forth. Weekends are always spent on family gatherings or some kind of sports competitions. Um, but why distinguished woman? Because I'm myself, I'm a great fan, uh, su great supporter of women causes. Back home, I'm on the board of Zonta Club, which is an NGO consisting of women executives. We all join force to help underprivileged women. Uh, I'm also one of the founding members of the Golden Bohemia Women Entrepreneurs Association, and we establish scholarship and a lot of mentoring programs for aspiring women entrepreneurs. And uh, I'm also very actively involved with the Women's Foundation, which focuses on a lot of research on issues such as gender equality and work-life balance. And they've been getting a lot of government support lately. And also, I'm volunteering for Women Helping Women Foundation, which focuses on helping marginalized women, especially those who experience domestic violence and domestic abuse. And on the lighter side of life, I'm 
a co-founder of a Femme Divan Society, a woman wine society. Uh, every month we organize wine tasting for wine education and networking opportunities. So when uh, Dean Doyle told me that this year our speaker is going to be a little bit different. Uh, how different? Because you know the first year, as Dean Doyle mentioned, Mrs. Harriet Fulbright gave an inspiring speech on international education. And uh, last year, Professor Laura Tyson, who happened to be Harvey's first economics professor, uh, gave an inspiring speech on women and the world economy. And this year, we are so excited because um, Harvey also happens to be in the wine business. In fact, his boss is the owner of a Napa Valley vineyard by the name of Sloan Estates. And Jenny, I believe the GM is uh, making her way down. Um, so we are really excited that today our guest lecturer, in fact, is a renowned author of a best-selling book called Tangled Vineyards. So all you need to know about what happened in Napa Valley Vineyards. So without further ado, I'll let Dean Doyle make an introduction uh, of our guest lecturer to you and stay tuned for the interesting lecture as well as some wine tasting after the lecture. Thank you. Thank you so much, Esther, and um, to you and um, Harvey for your um, generosity. So without further ado, we'll move on to the main event. Um, I'm very pleased to introduce Frances um, Dinkelspiel, who is an award-winning author and journalist. Um, she's based in Berkeley, um, which is wonderful, um, since we'll learn in a second or two that she's a Stanford graduate. <laughs> I promised her that I'd make a dig about that. Um, so she and she and um, we thought that um, the, a very engaging um, way to um, organise this afternoon was as a conversation um, rather than a lecture as such. And um, so um, Francis will be in conversation with Deirdre English, a lecturer in our um, graduate school of journalism here. And um, they're going to discuss how power, money, gold, and wine all contributed to the making of California then and even today. And that covers, I think, at least one of the favorite themes of many people in this room. So I'm certainly looking forward to the conversation immensely. Um, Francis has delivered more than 200 lectures on the history of California, including the role that Jews made to the development of the state. In 2009, she co-founded Berkeleyside, with which uh, many of you are, I'm sure, very familiar, um, an online news site that has since twice won the Best Community News Site Award from the Northern California Society of Professional Journalists. In 2013, Dinkelspiel helped create NOSH, um, another of my favorite um, themes, um, a, a website about the food scene in the East Bay. Um, as I mentioned, um, Francis is a graduate of Stanford University and the Columbia University School of Journalism. Um, she began her reporting career at the Syracuse newspapers in upstate New York and um, then moved to the San Jose Mercury News. She's written for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, um, the Los Angeles Times, People Magazine, San Francisco Chronicle, San Francisco Magazine, and more. Um, her first book, um, Towers of Gold, How One Jewish Immigrant Named 
Isaias Hellman created California, uh, was a San Francisco Chronicle bestseller, a finalist for the Northern California Book Awards, and was the best book of the year named by both the San Francisco Chronicle and the Northern California Independent Booksellers Association. Her most recent book, um, appears to be getting similar acclaim. Um, Tangled Vines, as Esther mentioned, but the subtitle um, is truly intriguing. Greed, murder, obsession, and an arsonist in the vineyards of California. And um, this is a New York Times and San Francisco Chronicle bestseller. Um, Deirdre English is a former editor-in-chief of the award-winning and influential Mother Jones magazine. She was a founder of one of the first women's studies programs in the U.S. and has taught at several uh, colleges and universities. She has written and edited work on a wide, range, wide array of subjects related to investigative reporting, cultural politics, gender studies, and public policy. Um, she's been with Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism since 1997. So please join me in welcoming Frances Dinkelspiel and Deirdre English to the stage. Um, <laughs> gold leads to money, leads to power, leads to wine. So um, I, it won't be hard for us to hit on all those topics. And obviously, we fit very comfortably under the rubric of the harvest um, uh, moniker. And, um, and the celebration of you as an as a outstanding woman um, leader and, and author. So uh, let's just plunge right in. Um, we, I've really enjoyed reading both of these books. I think they're uh, extraordinary. Um, Towers of Gold, the story of Francis Dinkelspiel's great-great-grandfather, Isaiah Hellman, and uh, the bold subhead um, in the, um, the uh, creating of California is something we'll ask you to defend. Uh, and that's a that's a, a wonderful book that is uh, a business history of of California, and an interesting way into uh, those of you who haven't studied California history in great depth. It's actually quite an interesting way to to, to look at it, um, uh, because it goes from the gold rush uh, uh, up into very contemporary, almost contemporary times. Uh, it's very recognizable. And it covers everything from uh, land development to um, the development of banking and finance. And uh, then Frances, in her second book, kind of takes something that began in the first book, Towers of Gold, but that she really explores in Tangled Vines, her second book, um, which is that her great-great-grandfather, Isaiah Hellman, invested in a vineyard, uh, in a Cucamonga Vineyard, in Southern California uh, when he was there. And um, eventually, Isaiah Hellman moves from Southern California to Northern California. And the wine industry also moves from Southern California to Northern, to Northern California um, for different reasons, but they remain tangled. Mm. So we will be talking um, more about the wine industry and the dark side of the wine industry, which Francis gets into in, in great depth, the labor exploitation, the fraud, the greed, uh, the arson, the criminal behavior, 
and the um, threats that continue to this day, the, the fraudulent marketing of, of some wines. So um, it's an it's a, it's a interconnected history. I think you've masterfully you know, woven all of these threads together. And we agreed that instead of just focusing on Tangled Vines today, we'll try to do a little bit of a timeline through both of the books so that we'll start with talking about Isaiah Hellman in the, uh, um, right from the very beginning and, um, and then uh, weave it uh, into the current book. Mm -hmm. So let's just start with talking about Isaiah Hellman himself. And as we were just a few minutes ago, you know, he was very young when he came to this country. Um, wh who was he? Mm -hmm. So Isaiah Hellman uh, was born in Reckendorf, Germany, which um, at the time was part of uh, uh, Franconia, one of the states of Germany. It later became part of Bavaria. And he was a, a, a Jewish boy who was born to a family uh, where his father was a weaver and his uncle was a cattle uh, trader. And uh, Jews in Germany were not accorded full citizenship. And um, although the town that Hellman lived in had uh, the, the Catholics and the uh, Jews had good relations, uh, it became very clear by the middle of the 19th century that the future for Jews was not in Germany. And uh, there had already been a migration of a number of Jews leaving Central Europe to come to the United States. But when the gold rush hit, it completely accelerated that um, emigration. And so Hellman came to the United States in 1859. And even though that was 10 years after the gold rush, it's still considered sort of part of the gold rush immigration. And, and he was 17 years old? He was 16 years old 16 and, and had had you know a little bit of secondary education. Um, yeah. Yeah. But not, not, much. A, not yeah. a college education or anything like that. But he was a European. He was a German. Mm -hmm. And he came from, if not a bourgeois family, certainly he had seen bourgeois life. He'd seen city life. He knew what banking was. Well, yes. He had, um, uh, you know, the town that he lived in only had 900 people living there. But mm -hmm. he, you know, his father was a, a weaver and also a peddler. And I don't know for a fact, but I imagine that Isaiah accompanied him to towns in Germany. He was also sent to secondary school in a town about 50 miles away from Reckendorf. And uh, so, although he, you know, grew up in sort of a more rural environment, you know, this was a very intellectual time in, in, in Central Europe. I mean, this was, you know, Napoleon had been there. There were all these revolutions going on. I mean, there, were, there was a certain level of sophistication that he would yes. have been exposed to. So, so coming to California then, to frontier California, at that yeah. time, Los Angeles had maybe 4,000, 5,000 residents. And I love one fact that you said there were 30 to 40 murders a day. No, no, not a day. Oh, a month. <laughs> a month. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, a month. Um, and uh, so it's a, the Wild West. Right. And it's a little bit, must have been for him, a little bit like going backwards in time, you know, to a rougher time. Um, but he saw a great deal of opportunity, as did so many other people. So, um, you know, it's often said that the people who really made the great fortunes uh, uh, out of the gold rush were the people who sold things to the miners. Right. Right. And indeed, he went into the dry goods uh, business, right? Right, exactly. So uh, for Hellman and for many other Jews who arrived, California was different from any place they'd ever been before. And their experiences were different than the Jews uh, in New York. Because in California, people were so focused on getting rich that they hadn't created social hierarchies that oppressed a lot of classes. I mean, uh, they, there was, you know, discrimination against African Americans and Chinese, but against Jews, they were regarded as white. 
And uh, you know, it was a frontier and nothing, there was no telegraph service between San Francisco and LA. There was no you know, train between the two cities. There were barely any roads. So essentially it was a completely undeveloped landscape. It, it, and there was no banking industry. No banking industry, right. In fact, one thing I learned from your book is that the California had actually outlawed banking. Yes. So what happened was there was so much gold in California when they wrote the California Constitution, they uh, decided not to let banks operate in the state. And this is for complicated reasons. It had to do with something called the free banking era when banks would just print up their own bank notes and there was a lot of, a lot of people lost a lot of money. So um, banks were outlawed. Uh, but that didn't mean people didn't set up banks. It just meant they were not regulated. There was no uh, minimum financial requirements. Um, and in fact, outlawing them probably you know, made things more volatile in the economy. And, and higher interest rates because people were, had to get their loans from individuals. Exactly. Could, so, so your great-great-grandfather uh, founded a bank in L.A., and he called it the Farmers and Mechanics Bank. Farmers and Merchants Bank. Farmers and Merchants Bank. And uh, he began to loan money to people in LA at more reasonable rates. Right, right. And he did very well. He did very well. So the bank opened in 1871, and his business partner was the former governor of California, which was, I think, a pretty good uh, pick. And um, yeah, so that what they did was that they were able to normalize the economy on some level by offering a lower interest rate. Interest rates in those days uh, could be you know, 5% a month. And so um, I'm sure many of you have heard of the huge transfer of land from the Californios, you know, the, the, the Mexican-born uh, um, Californians, to the Americans. And a lot of that was because the Californios borrowed money and put up their land as collateral, not really understanding that uh, compounded interest was going to increase their debts uh, phenomenally. So. Um, Hellman came in and was able to offer good rates, and he was able to, he, he brought capital to the city. People needed to borrow money to, to, to buy houses and do businesses, and so. And Hellman, uh, Isaiah Hellman arrived with his brother. Yes. Herman. Yes. Um, and that's maybe worth mentioning because later they, later they were at odds. Yes. And uh, the, the stormy personal history, I mean, there are many ups and downs in business and uh, over time, and Hellman experienced them, and sometimes they take a toll on personal relations, and it certainly happened between these two brothers. Mm -hmm. But at that time, they were still in business together. Mm -hmm. And who else did he go into business with? So, um, you know, this is one of the interesting things about Los Angeles. Um, it was a society that really all the groups sort of mixed together, the Californios, uh, the Americans, the Europeans. It was a time of, um, to some degree, of business harmony. Um, there were other t tensions um, around other things. But so his business partners were Basques. They were Irishmen. They were Germans. They were other Americans. So what had happened, Los Angeles was a city that was never meant to be because there's no uh, natural port. There's no navigable river. There are no minerals. There's no reason a city should have grown up there. But a group of people sort of banded together and almost willed Los Angeles into existence, including Isaiah Hellman, um, by really uh, focusing on, the, on, on business development in Los Angeles. And that's why the city took off. I mean, it was always... So water, water energy. Water and trains. Those were the two most important things in the mm -hmm. beginning. Agriculture was a very important product. Um, and uh, you know, eventually, of course, water and, and you know, pa so, power and oil were really important. So, but first the trolleys, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, building a trolley car system in Los Angeles. Right. 
And then he, uh, he bought a great deal of land, mm -hmm. and he donated some of that to found the University of Southern California, right. um, which increased the value of the land around it. Right. <laughs> and in a, you know, his um, mastery of, uh, of uh, horizontal integration, his control of the trolleys also allowed him to run a trolley to the campus, okay. which also helped to increase the value of the surrounding right. land. Right. Um, so he was able to uh, exploit many different industries, many different businesses, mm -hmm. uh, as well as banking, and have so many different different partners. Mm -hmm. um, when did he buy Rancho Cucamonga? He bought Rancho Cucamonga. So Rancho Cucamonga is the place where my book Tangled Vines talks about um, this fire and um, that destroyed four and a half million bottles of wine. And among the wine that was destroyed were 175 bottles made by Isaiah's Helmet in 1875 from a, a vineyard in Rancho Cucamonga. And um, so he bought Rancho Cucamonga in 1870, 71. Um, so he was very young at that point. It was before he farmed, started Farmers and Merchants Bank. But he got together a syndicate of, of businessmen in San Francisco, and they uh, bought this land that was being foreclosed upon because uh, the widow couldn't, who owned it couldn't pay her debts. And um, yeah, you know, it was, it was a business deal for him. Mm -hmm. So uh, what was the state of wine cultivation, grape cultivation and winemaking in California at, at that time? Mm -hmm. What, what was the history of it before so, Isaiah Hellman ever came right. to this country? So I think a lot of people don't realize that the, uh, the California wine industry got its start not in Napa or Sonoma, but in Southern California. Um, and that was primarily because uh, Father Unipro Serra, who, who started the mission system, he brought up grapes uh, from Baja, California, and planted them to make sacramental wine. And he brought up a grape variety called Mission Grapes, which were really, really hardy grapes that did well in the hot suns of Southern California. Were they already called Mission Grapes? Or no, were no. They, they, were, they, they, they were named after the California Missions. They were named after the California Missions. That's not their Latin name. Well, yeah, of course, really. <laughs> but um, so uh, Los Angeles was known as the city of vines because grape growing did really, really well. And um, you know, probably by the 1850s, there were 100 vineyards in the city of Los Angeles, uh, people making a wine for local consumption and a little bit for export. It really hadn't, the export really hadn't taken off by then. Um, but it was a growing business. So after everyone rushed to California to make money in the gold mines, when that sort of ran out or became part of, you know, large corporations started taking over the gold mining industry, people looked for other businesses to go in. And agriculture was, of course, one of the most important things. And um, a lot of people thought, you know, growing grapes and making wine was um, a growing industry. And in fact, um, they got tax rates for planting vineyards and things like that. So when Hellman bought uh, the, the, the uh, Cucamonga Vineyard in 1871, the California had a pretty vibrant wine business going. All this one type of grape? Mostly, well, it was predominantly Mission Grapes mm -hmm. until 1890 in California. And one thing that's important to know is Mission Grape made really crummy wine. I mean, it's, it was, um, it was and, and, their, and their winemaking methods were not very sophisticated. So, you know, even if they had better grapes, the wine wasn't always so good. Um, it, it made sort of dry, it made um, flat wine that didn't have a lot of acidity. 
Uh, there was a push to bring in other kinds of, of grapevines to California starting around 1860. There was a really big push. And slowly, there was a transition from you know, having Mission grapes be the number one grape to having other varieties. But were, that- Were they all, were, is that a red varietal or? Um, uh, Mission, well, you can make white wine too from red grapes. From but yeah, red. Mission is a red, a red grape. I mean, mm -hmm. um, most of the wine was port was made from it and red wine and stuff like that. Um, but um, So it all depends on whether you process the skin or not. Exactly. Right. right. So, um, But they did win a, a, an award, such as it may have been, you know, uh, for the quality of their wine yeah. at the time. Yes, yeah, so um, Rancher Cucamonga actually became very well known for the wine it made. And it, it, what um, a lot of ways winemakers made wine taste better was to fortify it. They would just pour a ton of brandy into the white wine <laughs> and the red wine. And um, so I found some great scenes in my book of, of 49ers trying to make it over the mountains. And they, you know, they were trudging through the deserts and they were you know, really tired and cold and hungry. And they, one of the first settled places they came upon was Rancho Cucamonga. And they ran into the uh, people making wine and they sort of just guzzled this wine down. And they were very happy after that. <laughs> So, um, but you know, in, in the beginning, um, the, the, the methods that they made wine were very primitive. They didn't have a lot of barrels here. So uh, Native Americans used to, they used to string up, you know, cow hides uh, on poles and Native Americans would stomp their grapes um, and, you know, and squish the grapes in the cow hides. And then they would sometimes have, you know, hide kind of containers to ferment the wine. Um, and eventually, and this was almost slave labor. It, it definitely was slave labor. Mm -hmm. um, and um, but it, you know, and, and so eventually, um, you know, they learned how to make better wine. But there were, for a long time, they people were just cutting corners to make money. They, it was just seen as a product, not really as something that was particularly special. Mm -hmm. Now, at some point, is it that um, Isaias Hellman saved some barrels of wine that eventually became the? 175 bottles that you finally lost in the uh, arson right. episode, you know, many decades later? Right. So I, I don't 100% know, but um, so I, here I am writing this book about this wine that was made in 1875, and I kept asking myself, why does the family have this old wine? We don't have 1873 wine or 1881 wine, we just have all this wine from 1875. And I, I or had it. Right? I had it, right, right. <laughs> um, and I think I, I figured it out, which I go to in the book, that um, it had been a particularly good year, and they must have like put a few barrels aside, and people forgot about it. And so when they were discovered in around 1920, after Hellman died, um, they were then bottled at that point. And they were bottled because during Prohibition, your family wanted to be able to take those bottles of wine, put the barrels of wine, put them into bottles and give them to the family. Yes, right. right? right. So that you could enjoy yourselves at home. Right. Um, yeah. So not you personally. Right, no. <laughs> yeah, people don't know that um, during Prohibition, individuals were allowed to make up to 200 gallons of wine a year. So. Um, 
Well, that would be quite an incentive yeah, it's quite for an people incentive. to go out and grow their own vineyards. Well, you know what happened was, so prohibition came and you think immediately that all the vineyards in California went broke. But in fact, they made more money the next year because they just shipped their grapes across the country to New York. So people, and people were lining up by the, you know, the, the boxcars would come in and people were lining up to buy the grapes in order to make their own wine. Uh -huh. And so that, that was a good business for a couple of years and then finally it fizzled. So actually, what did lead to the downfall of the um, LA-based vineyard uh, agricultural economy? Um, so Los Angeles and Southern California were the um, biggest wine-growing areas until the late 1880s. Um, and what happened was um, um, a blight hit, something called Pierce's disease. And within two years, it had completely decimated most of the vineyards in Southern California. And by that point, uh, there was a rapid industrialization around um, Los Angeles. Land was much more at a premium um, than it had been previously. There was a boom that went on. And so lots of those uh, uh, you know, parcels were not planted back into wine. And of course, it was- The land the, became more valuable for housing than for, for housing vineyards? Or for oranges. Oranges became, of course, the huge crop of Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and the other thing was the realization that Southern California was actually not the best climate for wine. That Northern California was a much better climate to grow grapes. Because it, it's hot all the time in LA and Southern California, but in, in Napa and Sonoma counties, one of the reasons they make such good wine is they're very warm during the day, but the um, temperature drops pretty significantly at night. And that sort of combination is the ideal uh, circumstances under which grapes grow. Big decline in fog now in uh, Northern California that may affect the, the uh, vineyards. Oh, well, sure, climate change is a, is a huge issue for... We'll get, yeah. we'll, we're not up to the present yet. Yeah. Um, so, so the wine industry basically collapsed, or the vineyards collapsed in mm -hmm. LA, mm -hmm. not entirely, but to a great extent. And um, what is it that made Isaiah Hellman move to Northern California? Um, well, um, so Isaiah was very prominent in Southern California, and he was um, probably you know the biggest banker in Los Angeles. He just had one little problem, which was his. He had a brother-in-law whose name was Meyer Lehman of Lehman Brothers. And I think um, Isaiah felt that he wasn't as important as his brother-in-law. And um, this is a little conjecture on my part. Um, I, and so I think he wanted to go to a bigger arena. So in 1890, he took over something called the Nevada Bank, which had been founded by four silver kings um, in 1875. And it had been once the most you know, the largest capitalized bank in the United States, um, but it had gone, fallen on hard times. And so Hellman bought it and moved up to, Southern, to Northern California to take it over. Uh, San Francisco was the center of, uh, of California at the time. There were more millionaires per capita in San Francisco than in New York at that time. It, you know, it was a very vibrant economy, and um, he wanted to What be, would you say the size of San Francisco was compared to LA? Oh, LA was very tiny. It was fewer than 25,000 people in 1890, and I'm not sure about um, uh, San Francisco, but it was probably more than 100,000. L.A. didn't really uh, uh, surpass San Francisco in population until after the turn of the century. So Hellman was, by this point, a rich man, mm -hmm. and he was, saw the opportunity to become much richer, and he wanted to play in, move to the big city and play in the big time, and he mm -hmm. built himself an incredible mansion. Mm -hmm. um, tell us about his mansion. 
Well, um, well, it was on Sacramento and Cal and and Frank. Franklin Streets. It had been built by a, um, a man named Nathaniel Cole, who was a ship, who was a ship's captain, and um, it was in an area that at that point was called the Western Edition, but they eventually renamed it sort of Pacific Heights to make it sound better. Um, and yeah, he lived. He, he and a very funny thing is he lived in this very fancy um, house, but it was he lived just like two doors down from his. Uh, his childhood friend, a guy named Isaac Walter, with whom he'd grown up in Germany. And just a couple uh, other houses down um, was another childhood friend from the same town, Reckendorf, the Hawses. Many of you, of course, being a cow, you know the Haas family. So um, this was really a fun thing to think about, that here were these uh, men who'd all come to California, who'd all struck it rich. Uh, they'd all been playmates back in Germany, and they continued their friendship uh, in California, and they used to walk to work together like a couple times a week, um, you know, to downtown. And there were other um, Jewish immigrants from Germany uh, who did very well in America, who um, invested in each other's businesses, became partners, and continued to expand their network. That's right. That's very important. Sort of, um, you know, uh, you know. That's how sort of the Jews really did well in California. You know, one brother would come over, raise some money, bring over another brother or another cousin. Some of them would be in San Francisco or Los Angeles or Portland or Seattle, and they would all do business with one another. Um, you know, Hellman, when he had his dry goods store, he would buy dry goods from the Haas family here. Um, when Abe Haas uh, started a canning, you know, factory, he would ask his Jewish friends to be investors. When Isaiah Hellman uh, came and bought Nevada Bank, he asked his Jewish friends to invest in Nevada Bank. He asked uh, non-Jews as well. Um, but what happened was, it was like, you know, what's the term, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. And so a lot of the German Jews and, and French Jews who came to California in the 1850s grew very affluent together at the same time because they cooperated with one another and they helped one another out business-wise. So um, at the same time, um, Hellman had a, a nephew who he had brought into his home for seven years and who he hired to be the chief cashier at his bank. Right. Um, but this is where his business interests and his family interests came into a tremendous clash. Yes. So um, this was really fun to find out. So I, I, Hellman had a, a cousin, a guy named Henry Fleischman, whom he regarded as a son. And he lived in his house, and he had installed him in uh, the bank. And uh, one day, um, Henry Fleischman, Henry Fleischman was a big, had a, a high position in the bank in, in Los Angeles, the Farmers and Merchants Bank. But one day, he did not show up to work. And a uh, sort of scouring of the books showed that uh, Fleischman had left with about $100,000 uh, from the bank. And he had fled uh, Los Angeles, and no one knew where he was. And um, you know, this was apparently at the time the largest embezzlement of a bank in California history. It made all the headlines over um, all over the state. Um, you know, there were you know Pinkerton guards looking for him. There were cops at all the train stations. You know, throughout California. Then he was spotted in Mexico, and you know emissaries were sent to try to find him. Uh, but he managed to escape, uh, sort of with that, you know, with all that money, and he wasn't caught. And this caused a tremendous breach between Isaias and his brother Herman. That's correct. So 
you know, Isaiah Hellman was very pig-headed in a lot of ways. Uh, he, he liked what he liked, and he was very loyal to family, and he had really admired this cousin Henry, whereas his brother Herman, who actually was, he was heading up this bank in L.A., um, thought Henry, there were some things about Henry he didn't like, and he tried to get Isaiah to uh, fire Henry, and Isaiah refused. And uh, it caused a big rift between the brothers that would later sort of force them apart. Um, so he was kind of myopic, he, Isaiah. He, he didn't want to see what he should have seen. Well, and it's, it would, we would be surprised if such a powerful and successful businessman as Isaiah Hellman did not have a big ego to match. Yes, of course, of course. So yes. um, his brother calls him something of a tyrant. Yes, I think And he, yeah. doesn't want to do business with him anymore. Right after that. So one of the things I found very interesting in doing the research um, was that I think, um, you know, during that era, uh, men who became very successful believed that they were successful not because of their luck, but they believed that they were successful because they were inherently better than a lot of people in, 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 in their world. And I think that's contributed to this arrogant attitude of Hellman. I think, um, you know, P I think people like him thought if someone was poor, it was poor because, you know, it was their fault, it was their mistake. And, um, you know, it's, it's so, um, you know, I, it's not that he wouldn't have sympathy for people who were down on their luck, and he did help people who's down on their luck, but I, th he, I think he believed in a natural order of things. And since he had risen to the top, it must mean that he, you know, had more he, brains he than anyone else. It. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, he then uh, became a very active investor in the Southern Pacific Railroad. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, so, just like about a couple years ago, I mean, I can't say it's true for this moment, you know, the idea, people, people who wanted to get rich would start internet companies, right? Like, let's, let's make an app, let's get rich. Well, back in Isaiah Hellman's time, the way to sort of get rich was to start a trolley line or to, um, yeah, to get in the transportation field. So Hellman built uh, trolleys at a very early era in Los Angeles. When he moved up to San Francisco, he also was involved in, tr in, in trolleys, and he became a financier for the Southern Pacific Railroad, um, both in their local lines in San Francisco and helping to raise capital to expand Southern Pacific. And so. And then, uh, how did he become? Um, uh, how did he get involved with Wells Fargo Bank? So what happened was, um, so Collis Huntington was one of the big four, and he, uh, uh, after he died, his nephew Henry Huntington hoped that he would be um, put in as the head of the of the of the Southern Pacific at that time, but he was not. Um, um, and a couple years later, a man named Edward Harriman purchased the Southern Pacific Railroad. Um, it was a huge business coup. And at that time, Southern Pacific Railroad actually owned a majority interest in Wells Fargo Express. Wells Fargo was known as a company that delivered gold, delivered passengers. Its banking functions were kind of a small part of its operation. And when Harriman bought Southern Pacific, he wanted to get rid of the bank. He, he was sort of like a, a dragging asset. So he was friends with Hellman, and he asked Hellman if he wanted to buy it. And what year was that? That was 1905. 1905. 1904. So, so the earthquake is coming. The earthquake is coming. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. And so he's living uh, with his, in his neighborhood with his Breckendorf buddies, uh, friends, boyhood friends, and he's living in this magnificent mansion that he's 
that's um, it has had all kinds of frescoes and beautiful um, furniture, and the earthquake comes. Right. So the, yes, the earthquake comes, and you know, the earthquake itself was devastating, but it was not as devastating as the fires that ripped through um, uh, the city afterwards. And the city didn't have any water, right? Because right. the water mains had been rooted through fill, so they ruptured, and the city was helpless and couldn't fight the fire. Right. So the fire burned for three or four days. Right. And so Hellman, um, Hellman had a, a, a the bank was uh, in the, something called the Nevada Block. It was on Montgomery and Pine Street. It was a beautiful building. Uh, the fire and earthquake completely damaged the, um, uh, the, the bank, and in fact damaged most of the banks in San Francisco. And what this meant was that there was really no cash to go around because you couldn't open a bank uh, a, a bank vault after a fire. You had to let the contents inside cool because if you open the door, the, the rush of oxygen would make all those contents explode. And so that process took about three weeks to cool down the vaults. And so a lot of the and, and a lot of the money was in the vaults. So um, you know, San Francisco was a city in ruins. Um, nobody had any money to sort of buy anything to do anything. Um, and so Hellman was one of a group of bankers who got together, who um, decided to sort of take over the, you know, the banking system um, by getting some money from the Mint, which was, did survive the earthquake, and doling it out in small increments to their customers. And um, they didn't even know who their customers were, and they gave out a lot of money uh, on faith. And it was sort of helped uh, ease the transition from this devastated city. And this is also the era of AP Giannini yes. and the founding of the Bank of America, right. because so there's a famous story. Giannini um, had only like eighty thousand dollars. He didn't even have a ton of money. But before the fire happened, he took all his money out. He put it in a wagon and he took it down to San Mateo. And um, after the fire was over, while all these other banks didn't have access to their money, Giannini went up to. Um, to North Beach, and he was able to give money out very quickly to a lot of his Italian customers. And uh, it earned him a tremendous amount of, uh, you know, people were very uh, happy that they got the money, and it sort of really catapulted Giannini's uh, reputation. And certainly the Bank of America marketed that story for all <laughs> it's worth for many, many decades. Yeah. So obviously now with uh, California's most significant city in ruins, it needed to rebuild, and to rebuild you need money and you need credit and you need loans. Mm -hmm. So suddenly the, the banks that were so new, I mean, he, your great-grandfather had only been uh, in was he the president? Was he nominally the president of the Wells Fargo he, Bank? Yeah, he was title? president of Wells Fargo uh, Bank. He for, had only been in that role for one year before the earthquake. Suddenly they're in the role of needing to mm -hmm. loan tremendous amounts of money right. and handle enormous amount of debt in order to rebuild San Francisco. Right, right. So this was, very, you know, this was one other area where the Jewish networks uh, came in handy. Um, I know that Hellman had a lot of relationships with banks in, in New York, uh, banks run by the Lehman family, um, and you know other banks that they could access capital. Um, and um, you know he actually they they had relationships with other banks, so there really wasn't a tremendous difficulty getting capital San Francisco to rebuild. It was just sort of mostly a short-term kind of uh, of dilemma. So. And then there was a lot more money to be made um, in the rebuilding of the ruined city. 
And in the meantime, what's going on in the vineyards in uh, Napa? In the vineyards in Napa. So, um, you know, uh, Cal you know the, the story of wine in California is very interesting because it is a story of boom and bust. I mean, I talked a little bit about what happened in... Um, in Southern California, in at the same time, all the vines were that were um, dying in Southern California. Uh, vines in France were dying as well of this disease called phylloxera. And California has always struggled to sort of prove itself as a good winemaking state. Uh, on the East Coast, from starting from the 1860s when the first bottle of wine was imported from California to New York. East Coaster, East Coast people prefer French wine or Italian wine. So the story of California is always it's always trying to prove itself um, in terms of quality. In terms of quality. So when France was hit by this phylloxera, all the California winemakers said, "This is our opportunity. We're going to plant a lot more grapes, and we're going to make the wine for the world because France is dead. It's gone. It can't make wine anymore." So there was a huge um, amount of planting that went on in the 1880s. Um, but as it turned out, France figured out how to resolve its phylloxera problem. And uh, as a consequence, in the 1890s, there was an enormous glut of grapes on the market. And um, the way the wine business was run in those days was different. It wasn't like individual proprietors did things. There were wine houses. There were about 100 wine houses uh, centered in San Francisco. And these were like large organizations that bought wine and made wine and sold wine and shipped it in barrels around the world. Um, but in the late 1890s, there was such a glut of, of wine um, on the market that grapes that you know once fetched $25 a ton fetched only $8 a ton. And so the, the, market, the whole business sort of collapsed. And um, to address that issue, a group of seven wine houses got together and formed something called the California Wine Association, which grew into a monopoly that controlled 80% of the production of wine in California. It grew, it was the muscle uh, behind the winemaking business in, um, in, uh, in California. And, and it, it, it fought very hard to do that. It, it, it did a wine war uh, with, with, with small producers. It squeezed out, um, you know, it, it lowered its price of grapes. It forced a lot of people out of business. And in the earthquake, very interestingly enough, it lost about 10 million gallons of wine. Um, and uh, not all of it was completely lost. There's one great story of one of the wine houses, the, the sewer drain got blocked during the earthquake, and the, the basement filled up with wine. And after the earthquake, the CWA convinced the San Francisco Fire Department to lay a series of hoses uh, from that cellar all the way through the streets to the port, where they um, off-pumped all of this you know, cooked wine into barges that were then taken to Stockton and converted into brandy. So <laughs> they did some fun things. But, um, but the California wine business, um, you know, it still had a problem with its reputation. It's still, California wine was not considered really good wine. The CWA did try to create a brand that was um, sort of uniform. It was called Calwa. They would blend. They tried to make like a Coca-Cola of wine for California wine. And it, so it did help California's reputation a little bit. Um, but still, uh, in general, um, you know, California suffered uh, in, in comparison to European wines. 
And wasn't there really a lot of adulteration of that wine too, the, the wine that was sold in those days in those barrels? Well, what were you really getting? Exactly, yeah. You know, winemakers, the, the ones who planted all those grapes to take advantage of the phylloxera, when the time came to make wine, a lot of them didn't know how to do it. And so they would just add like red food coloring and chemicals to mask the moldy flavor. And so all of this contributed to California's terrible reputation. In the meantime, who's doing the labor in the fields? Okay, so this is, yeah, this was one of the most interesting things to find out. So, um, you know, Deirdre talked about, you know, that I mentioned the dark side of the wine industry. And, um, you know, most, I love wine, I love to drink wine, and most of my exposure to wine before I wrote this book was going up to Napa, which is such a spectacular place, you know, with all those undulating hills with grapevines and the, you know, blue skies and the fantastic food and really, really good wine. Um, but when you look back at how California wine was made, um, it really was, uh, the history of wine is really a history of exploitation. Um, you know, Father Unipro Serra, when they started to make wine at the missions, they um, used the Native Americans who converted to Christianity as their labor. And once those Native Americans converted to Christianity, they were chattel for the missions. They weren't allowed to leave. They weren't allowed to work on their own schedule. They were really sort of put to work. Um, but interestingly enough, the, the Americans treated the Native Americans worse than the Franciscan missionaries. The very first law passed in California, before it even became a state, was something called the Indian Indenture Act. And there was a big labor shortage in California in 1850 because of the gold rush. So the legislature passed this law, which enabled any white person to identify a Native American as either drunk or indolent. Um, and that would mean that that Native American was subject to arrest by um, the sheriff or a marshal and fined. And most of those Indians could not pay their fines. So the marshal would then sell off that Indian's labor to the highest bidder uh, for a week period of the time. And the marshals would pocket a percentage of that money. And um, the municipalities would pocket, uh, pocket a percentage of that money. So really, in the um, you know, starting from the 1850s through the 1870s, you know, the California wine business was um, you know, developed on the backs of this slave labor of Native Americans. And they eventually died out because they, they were so brutally mistreated. So after the uh, Native American workers tragically died out, then what did the uh, vineyard owners do? Yeah, well, they turned to the next group, which was the Chinese workers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the Chinese had come over in huge numbers to work on the railroads, and the, rail, the Transcontinental Railroad was um, completed in 1869, and all of a sudden there was this huge pool of labor. And um, you know, a lot of vineyard owners did not like using the Native Americans because they uh, were very susceptible to alcohol and they needed a lot of supervision. And the Chinese, in, in contrast, were self-governing and they were very, very hardworking. And um, uh, I think what is not very well known is that the Chinese really started um, you know, agriculture in California, including in the vineyards. Uh, they were the, the, the people who, you know, planted the grapes, who cultivated the grapes, who made the wine. And the same is true for lots of other crops But they didn't have the opportunity to have ownership. No, 
No, um, no. They were, they were workers for hire. I mean, you know, the amount of prejudice against the Chinese. I mean, there were no laws, I think, saying that Chinese uh, people could not own the land, but they were very mistreated, and the amount of uh, bias and prejudice against the Chinese was extraordinary. And of course, I think it was 1884, the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed, which prohibited Chinese immigration into California. So, um, yeah, so the Chinese. Um, uh, was the next, you know, um, wave of worker, and that eventually gave away uh, to uh, Mexican, Mexican and Central American workers, workers and um, yeah. yeah, migrant workers. Right. Well, um, so in the meantime, what is happening with the quality of the of the of the wine, and how did wine come to be stored in this warehouse uh, that you okay. talk so about? So we have to sort of fast forward. Yeah. So prohibition came completely devastated the California wine economy. Um, you know, um, certain uh, vineyards and wineries did okay because they could sell sacramental wine to synagogues and churches. For a while, a lot of wine um, wineries sold grapes. They shipped them east. But eventually, you know, most of the wineries had to shut down. And prohibition was listed, lifted in 1933. And really, even by the late 1960s, California had fewer vineyards operating than they had you know, prior to Prohibition. And Americans were drinking sweet wine. They didn't really like table wine. And all of that changed when Julia Child came on the scene and Jackie Onassis came on the scene. And you know, uh, vets who, who, who'd fought in World War II started to think about drinking wine like they'd seen uh, in France. Um, and so starting in, in 1967, you know, the California wine industry really took off. And you know, it's been sort of an upward trajectory most of the time since then. Um, and so my modern day story uh, sort of starts probably around then. Uh, there was a man named Mark Anderson who was born in California, born in Berkeley in 1948. He came from a, a family who lived in the Claremont district. Uh, he went to John Muir School. He um, you know, was a nice average kid. And uh, he moved to Sausalito to work on the houseboats in the early 70s, and then he eventually made his way to Hong Kong and then to Japan, where he lived for a number of years. And he fell in with a group of very rich Japanese businessmen who liked to travel around the world having wine adventures. And Mark uh, learned a lot about wine from them, and then he came back to the US and he did a lot of things, none of them successfully. But in 1999, he started a wine storage business um, where he set up a facility where he was uh, storing people's wine. Because you know, wine needs to be kept at a certain temperature. Most people don't have that facility in their house. And so Mark did that business for a while. And, and then he realized that. Um, and this he, is where the greed and arson in your subtitle come, come in. in. That's right. He, he, he was not a stupid guy. He figured out he could make a lot more money by selling his clients wine than just renting them space. Uh, so for a period of a couple years, he would just take his clients wine and take it around to various stores and sell it. And one of these stores was so, Premier Crew. Which, so he's, he's in effect. <laughs> Yeah. He's stealing his clients' wine. He's stealing his clients' wine. And I don't know if you've been reading about the recent problem with Premier Crew. Well, um, back in you know, d you know, 2000, John Fox, who owns Premier Crew, he would just take Mark's wine. He didn't ask for any proof that Mark owned the wine. Um, Mark was eventually charged with embezzlement. 
um, at which point there were these uh, charges levied against him and he was in the newspaper. The owner of Premier Crew then said, you know, I don't want your wine, Mark Anderson. But all Mark did was change the name um, under which he sold the wine and he continued to sell the wine. Uh, so this is part of what I get into the book, just how poorly regulated the wine business is. Anyway, Mark got, um, was charged with many counts of embezzlement and um, in, a, in a desperate attempt to cover his tracks, he set fire to the wine's central warehouse in Vallejo in 2005. And uh, it destroyed a quarter of a billion dollars worth of wine. Hoping 91. that he would get the insurance payoff and, and be able to cover his tracks. Yeah, and that he'd actually sold so much of the wine. And then the police wouldn't be able to say, where, you know, you sold your client's wine. He would say, no, it just burnt up it in burned that up, fire. Yeah. Right. It didn't really work out so well for him, though. It didn't work out for him. He's now in uh, a place that doesn't sound so good, Terminal Island. Yes. It's serving a 27-year sentence. Right. Right? So. so, but you say that today the wine industry is still not well regulated and that there's still uh, fraud in so, the yes, wine business. So, yes, there's a lot of fraud in, 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 uh, in the wine business. I mean, um, so just here in Berkeley, I've been writing a lot about this incredible wine retailer named Premier Cru, which has been around since 1980. They did a lot of online wine sales. They would offer really great French Bordeaux and Burgundy at prices that were much lower than their competitors. Um, and people would buy the wine, and, uh, but then uh, they were often buying wine futures, which meant they would buy wine that was still in barrels because you can get it for less money when it's still in barrels um, and, um, than when it's bottled. Um, but a lot of these clients have been complaining that wine they paid for was never delivered. And um, so there was sort of this low-level rumble on a lot of wine boards about what was going on. Um, but then uh, just in December, or sorry, um, in December, Premier Cru shut down unexpectedly. Um, and then in January, it filed for bankruptcy. And just this week, the FBI announced that it's investigating it for a Ponzi scheme. Uh, so they ha when they filed for bankruptcy, they listed $70 million in debts and $7 million in assets. So, so there's some $63 million out there floating around. Um, nobody knows where. So this is just, I mean, this is just the most recent example, but there are uh, lots of other examples of people making fraudulent wine and selling it to some of the world's most renowned collectors and, and things like that. There's, there is a lot of dirt. <laughs> we'll keep stuff. you busy. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to turn to questions in the audience in a, in a minute, but I just want to comment that this all began in some ways with a personal history for you, uh, but it turned into California history and business history and uh, so many uh, other things. And what, how do you feel that doing these two books um, has uh, changed you or affected you, or what has it made you appreciate that perhaps mm -hmm. you didn't before you, before you embarked on these, all this research. Well, you mentioned California history. I mean, I did study history in college, and I've always loved it. But um, it's been really interesting uh, approaching you know, California from a journalistic point of view in the sense that there's a lot of great history that's unknown out there. I mean, there, um, there are, I mean, I found in the history of Isaiah Hellman that was a relative, but that was a great unknown history. This whole um, other side of the wine world, it has been told in academic uh, tomes, but it hadn't really been told so, so much in sort of popular books. Um, and so, um, you know, 
I, I just think there's, I, uh, there's, there's such a rich history in California. So much of it has not been explored. And so that's sort of what gets me going. And, and that's been what I've learned the most, that I can combine these two skills that I have in a fun way. I agree. I think that the history of our country has been told very much through an East Coast filter. Mm -hmm. And most of the historians are on the East Coast. So there's still a lot of material left um, here on the West Coast. Yeah. Well, with that, let's uh, turn to the audience and see what questions we may have for you. Well, before we go to questions, um, I'd invite everybody to thank um, Francis and Deirdre for an absolutely fascinating discussion. I, th I, I thought I knew a fair amount about the topic, but I realized that I knew almost nothing. <laughs> um, we'll take questions for about um, 10 minutes or so, if, that many, uh, if we have that many questions. And then, we, as was mentioned before, we have a reception um, at the back of the auditorium. And that, of course, will afford everybody the opportunity to ask more informal questions. Um, so with that, I invite anyone who has questions to please come forward. Let's talk about climate change on the vineyards. Sure. Um, the question is, will we talk about climate change on the vineyards? I think um, you know, the, nobody knows exactly what's going to happen, but um, as uh, you know, the climate warms up, that diurnal uh, difference between you know hot days and cool nights is certainly going to diminish in Napa and Sonoma. Um, that will affect the quality of the grapes. Um, and so, uh, you know, presumably, you know, the wine industry might move north. Though, of course, there are a lot of scientists who are experimenting and trying to create grapes that will be able to uh, still, you know, do well even if the climate is hotter. But I think, um, you know, the, the drought was has had an effect on California. Uh, certainly, last year the yields were much lower because. Uh, the you know, plants were more stressed out. I think they're probably going to do okay this year. But definitely climate change is a, is a very major worry for, uh, you know, uh, grape growers and winemakers. Uh, I wanted to ask if you could share some of the history about um, uh, our University of California, Berkeley being, you know, the university farm and later on Davis becoming our university farm. Uh, just uh, how... Viticulture came to be a part of the you know, body of knowledge of the University of California. Right. Um, so the question is sort of how you know how did viticulture evolve in the halls of academia in California? So of course the original and only university, uh, public university in California, was here at Berkeley for a very long time. And, and we, I say as Hellman was a regent. Yes, for he a, was a regent a for a long period. Thirty-eight years, he was a regent, I believe. Um, so um, there was a man, I think his name was Mr. Bioletti, who headed up a very important um, uh, department at UC Berkeley that studied wine. Um, and that in itself is a very interesting history because he brought an academic perspective to making wine. Um, and he had his supporters, but there were a lot of businessmen who thought like his approach towards wine was ridiculous and unnecessary. And those supporters eventually convinced, um, you know, the legislature to unfund him in a lot of ways. And uh, so, um, 
once Davis was founded, the whole winemaking, uh, the study of wine and stuff was moved up to UC Davis. So really from the, from the very start, Berkeley has been very involved in trying to create better grapes, studying the conditions under which grapes flourish, sort of um, measuring the temperatures of different areas in California to determine climates and all sorts of things. Um, so it's been very, very critical, but politics has also played a role in how that, those kind of departments have done. I seem to remember that there's a connection with the Hellman name to the Airman Mansion in Westlake Tahoe. Is it the same? A Hellman family? Yes, so the question is there's a connection between the Hellmans and the Ermans in uh, Tahoe. So Isaiah Hellman, um, who I write about in Towers of Gold, he built a, a beautiful house on the western shore of California, of Lake Tahoe, called Sugar Pine Point, he named it. And um, after he died, his daughter uh, inherited it, and her name was Florence Hellman Ehrman. She was married to Sidney Ehrman. So the place is, has something called the Ehrman Mansion on it. So that's the answer. It's a state park now? It's a state park, yes. So yeah, it was taken by eminent domain by the California in 1968, and people were very upset about it. But I think in retrospect, it was a good thing, because now there's two miles of open shoreline for everyone to enjoy. Yeah, great. You've described a, the cross-section of the Jewish history of California. Is that really the California history? It seems like such a large part of it, and yet Jews were such a small part of the population here. So I'm wondering whether, whether we're simply seeing a focus on that from your discussion, obviously you researched mm -hmm. it, or whether it was as big as it sounds. And if it was as big as it sounds, how did it get so big? That's a very good question. Yeah, yeah I don't know how to answer that. I, maybe, yeah, Jews are a very small percentage of the population in California. Um, but perhaps they had an outsized influence, certainly in the early days of California, just because of the tremendous financial success they had and how they spent their money and their philanthropic endeavors. Um, so, but you, you, you know, I mean, you, we could be talking about Irish history up here too, and there would be a lot to say about Irish history or Chinese history, or you know, it's just that I happen to have written about it. Why? That's why it's the focus of this conversation. And there, a related question. One block in San Francisco with multiple residents from Reckendorf, Germany, all born at the same period of time, all raised in the same town of 900, all find their way here eventually. All are monumental um, names in the history of California. They're, they're wonderfully successful. They have families that were wonderfully successful for generations. But the starting point is this little spot in Reckendorf. Mm -hmm. um, what in the water there? <laughs> and and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering whether it's just the fact that Europeans in 1850 knew what the future of the United States in 1851 was going to look like because we were still living in 1820. Mm -hmm. Yes. I didn't get the last part. Well, uh, well, the United States was behind Europe in yes. terms of its cultural and economic and political and Artistic you know, I, I think this touches, if I may throw mm -hmm. something in here, on you know the advantages of being discriminated against in some situations. Uh, that when Francis discussed the fact that Jews could not own property in Germany, were not citizens, uh, and, and, and in other Central and Eastern European countries as well. So they were motivated to immigrate, uh, whereas other young men who would have good prospects in Europe perhaps wouldn't have been as motivated. 
Um, after all, it's mainly the poor who immigrate. Right. Um, but in this case, it was you know, well-educated uh, middle-class Jews who... Well, well, Except they, Isaiah was, what, 16. How well-educated yeah, can he be? Or well, was he? Was he classically European educated? Yeah. I mean, they weren't exactly middle class. I mean, they they had a, the the money to send their children overseas, but um, yeah. But actually, the middle class Jews, uh, when restrictions were loosened in Germany starting in the 1860s, many of them went to the cities, and they didn't come to America. Um, but the question about the water in Reckendorf is a really good one. I did find mm -hmm. out in my research that um, at least eight men who came from Reckendorf became multimillionaires in the 19th century. Um, and did they all go to the same uh, school? They probably all went to the same little Jewish school. <laughs> that teacher might have been the, the, the glue. Who knows? But Yeah, yeah it would, that would be interesting. Eight Jews from Reckendorf. Right. Eight, eight. Probably went to the same synagogue, too. Yeah, the same synagogue. synagogue. I mean, there's probably somewhere back there, there's probably some figure that would be interesting to discover. You know, yeah. one might guess that there would be some educator or rabbi who played a role in their, yes. in their formative times. I just would comment one thing that about your saying, you know, how do you get into proportion? You know, how much is the Jewish history of California, the history of California, or how much did Jews create California? Um, that I don't think we can give a definitive answer to that, but what I would add to this is that I think the story of the Jewish role in the creation of California actually was a little known story. Um, and so I think Francis's, one of the importance of Francis's work has been in surfacing that story, and then perhaps it's for other people to try to get it into proportion, you know. Or, or say, you know, rel uh, the importance of that story relative to others. Mm -hmm. But it's a story, it's a story that really ha had not been told. There's a wonderful documentary movie, and I know you played um, a role in, in, in You're In It, right. um, by a, a woman named Jackie um, Krensman that's called American Jerusalem. And American Jerusalem is San Francisco. And it is uh, another attempt, and a very recent one, uh, just within the past two years, a few years, but it was on PBS. Um, to to tell that untold story, that 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 the that the Jews of San Francisco did play an, an important role, maybe not the all important role, but an important role in the development of the of the economy and the culture that we are still living in today. It's very very much the heirs of of the institutions that they created. So uh, yes. Hi, thank you. Um, just moving up to the modern day, I wanted to ask you, Francis, um, about given the focus on the Harvest Lecture Series and its, its focus on women, if you might speak to um, your own experience as a prominent woman author and as co-founder of Berkeleyside, and then also perhaps to touch on, because I'm curious about it, women in the wine industry today. Uh, yeah, so uh, I do, one of my main characters in my book uh, is a woman. Her name is Delia Villadere. She had grown up in Argentina. Her family had, um, uh, you know, Spanish roots and, and French roots. She is one of the first really prominent female winemakers in Napa. She lost uh, about $4.5 million worth of wine in that fire. She was uninsured. Uh, this woman has an incredible spirit and an incredible drive, and she was able to recover from that devastating financial loss. Um, and so 
uh, you know, there are, there are a number of female winemakers in Napa. I mean, it's been a place where uh, women have thrived as much as men, uh, and, and there are a lot of iconic names. Um, so anyway. You know, I'm glad that you mentioned Berkeley side because we didn't get to that, but Frances is one of the founders and she's a reporter and editor for Berkeley side, an online local, hyper-local um, newspaper or news site mm -hmm. that I think we can all be very grateful for uh, and plays a really important role. And I hope if any of you have not, um, don't look at it, you will, uh, you'll Google it and go look at it. So thank, thank you, you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.